0: You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia.
1: Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today we have an exciting topic and an exciting guest. We are talking about Asia's business news agenda in the year ahead. And we have two media guests joining us today. We have Kevin Krolicki. He is the Asia regional editor for Reuters. We also have Ravi Velor, who is the associate editor for the Straight Times based out of Singapore. Welcome, gentlemen. Listen, I want to start in 2020 before we look into 2021. And if you look back, what is the one thing that kind of surprised you the most in 2020?
2: Kevin. Okay. Uh, do I have to pick one thing? I have a few, right? So Go for I, it. One thing certainly stood out for me, and, and you know this is an observation of our business, of the news business, but I think it applies to other companies as well. Traditionally, the way we operated were in was in newsrooms. Uh, I had a belief, certainly maybe a professional bias, that the most productive newsroom would be one where people were proximate, where uh, the brainstorming was happening in real time. It was a real surprise to me how quickly we were able to become networked, to become a virtual newsroom, how productive that was, and in many ways, how much better that was than the model interrupted. And I think this has caused us to look at Uh, as we come out of this, how we staff, where we staff, what a footprint needs to look like. I think that must be true for many businesses. I know, in fact, many businesses are having that discussion. I think that was one, you know, beyond that, a huge surprise was what happened to asset prices over the course of, of the year. I think at the beginning of the year, at the beginning of the pandemic, if you had, uh, that would have been a pretty bold call. And yet here we are. And for me, the, I guess the other surprise I would mention is, for a global pandemic for that first came to light in China, the speed with which and the degree to which China bounced back was a big surprise as well. Ravi, your biggest surprise, 2020.
3: Oliver, you, I'm a person who used to travel twice a month uh, out of Singapore, someplace in Asia, either for a conference uh, or to moderate or to speak. But all of uh, 2020, I have not sat in an airplane. I had traveled, planned for the 24th of January but new rules came into the company saying that only the most essential travel was permitted and i had to cancel that trip and since then i've been grounded so to speak but you know the most surprising thing is uh, i used to think that that's going to be terribly vexing for me because i'm restless i need to go out meet people be with people and uh, but how quickly I have adjusted, you know, the first three months were really bad, but after that, I sort of got used to it. And today I'm getting into conferences around the world where I would have to travel before, you know, whether it's happening in Hawaii or in in London uh, or in New Delhi, I'm I'm in those conversations and I'm sitting right here in Singapore and getting it done. So that to me on a professional level has been uh, something really remarkable. The fact that I could uh, adapt to it, uh, that it's worked out well for me. Uh, I think my productivity has uh, gone up tremendously, and that's it. And on a, on a business level, uh, I I second uh, what uh, Kevin just said. It's just amazing uh, how much, uh, how well the newsroom is adapted to uh, the new environment. We do a mix, uh, but uh, uh, in the first six months, everybody wanted to come back to the office as quickly as possible. Today we have difficulty persuading people to come back. I mean, are finding ways to stall and say, hey, can I not stay at home and get my work done from there? So, uh, you know, th- that's been a big change.
1: Thank you. Thank you, both of you. And now we're going we're gonna to switch into 2021. And we're going to come back to some of the things that you mentioned in 2020. Are, are some of those here to stay also for you personally? But 2021, year of the ox in uh, mythology the ox is known for its diligence, its strength, determination. These are characteristics that we're going to need, I think, in spades as we look to the year ahead. Uh, we're looking at a continued pandemic. We're looking at climate change and sustainability and all its uh, effects. We're looking at continued geopolitical tensions. We're looking at an ongoing technology revolution. All of these things are happening at the same time. So, indeed, 2021 is a year where we're going to need that strength and determination more than ever. But as you look ahead, what are some of the big things you're looking to in 2021? Kevin,
2: why don't we start with you? Sure. Well, if I could just mention, maybe I'll start with events, which are more concrete than ideas. I think for us, you know, there are two big events on the agenda in Asia this year that we're covering. Closely and, and, and watching closely, really, as, as bellwethers for how the world is changing and what the immediate, sort of, if not post pandemic, then mid pandemic climate looks like. And, and one of those, of course, is the, the Tokyo Olympics. It, it's still an open question about whether it proceeds uh, and how it proceeds. The Olympic Committee is determined to, to press ahead with the event, as are the Japan organizers. You know this really would have been sort of peak olympics in some ways you know there were three billion dollars in corporate sponsorship or a record lined up for this event it was although it was an olympics that sold itself in part on its green credentials and a relatively compact footprint it was going to be a big games and a big game for a big event for corporate sponsors as well that's all changed and one of the most interesting changes for me was that this is a game Um, that sold itself on its popular support in in Japan. And and now a majority of the people of, of Tokyo, Japanese people, are opposed to the games going ahead unless there are much stricter controls on travel and spectators. So how those games proceed, how the corporate, commercial, and sport interests are reconciled with the public health concerns and public opinion, I think, is going to be very important and interesting to watch. As will be, um, and I'd be interested in Ravi's perspective on, on this, how the World Economic Forum happens as that event opens in Singapore, now in August, would have been in May and now delayed to August. So yeah, I think those are, the, those are two interesting events we want to watch. And again, really interested to hear Ravi's thoughts on, on the latter of those, especially. Ravi, what is the WEF going to be like in August
3: in, in Singapore? Well, Oliver, well, let's hope that it does take place to begin with, because as you know, uh, we just postponed it uh, by a couple of months. Uh, because We're not too sure that we could handle such a big event uh, safely enough, and I think there was some bilateral talks uh, between the WEF and uh, the Singapore government, and that's when they decided to move it. I, for one, would be spending a lot of time watching geopolitics in the region, geopolitical tension. That's on three axes. Uh, the first is U.S.-China. That's the big picture. There's also, the U.S. I mean, uh, China and Southeast Asia, especially Vietnam, uh, Philippines, and Indonesia, and China and India. Uh, all three of them are, uh, are issues that need very careful watching uh, because a lot could go wrong, uh, particularly on the uh, China-India border. Uh, that could upset uh, much of Asia, and in attendance uh, with this geopolitical tension is the reordering of supply chains that's going to take place uh, through the year it's started to happen for the last two years it's accelerated in 2020 and let's see where that goes this year i think we're going to see some significant changes i just read a report overnight uh, about uh, cell phone manufacturing in india uh, just uh, you know shooting up uh, thanks in part to uh, the Modi government's uh, support for it local manufacture The other thing I'd be uh, watching uh, from a broad perspective is the interest rate cycle. And at some point, this lower for longer thing cannot continue. And uh, there has to be uh, a turnaround in the uh, interest rate cycle. And that's going to affect uh, business in the region. And there's also the the, the support that the uh, governments around the region are giving their businesses at some point has to taper off because funds are limited. They're not limitless. And I think that's going to have effects on business, on people. And then there's of course the vaccine itself. The, although there are several vaccines out there that are in production, I don't think the research into vaccines hasn't ended quite yet. I think uh, we're going to see uh, even better vaccine discovery uh, in the days ahead. Maybe stuff that uh, would be uh, vaccines that could be stable at uh, higher temperatures than uh, they are now. And the rolling out of the vaccine itself uh, and uh, you know, the territories that do it right uh, are going to be first off the block in the rebound. Uh, so these are some of the issues, uh, Oliver, that we're going to be paying attention to uh, over the course of the year.
1: And uh, thank you, Ravi. Let's let's dig into some of these topics. Why don't we start? The first one you mentioned is geopolitics, but also the effect it has on on supply chains. Say a little bit more about that. What is driving some of these shifts in supply chains? Who are What are the countries? What are the sectors that you're know, going to be looking to to take advantage of this, so to speak. Ravi, why don't you go first and then we'll go to Kevin.
3: Oliver, you know that most of the spills out of China at the moment have come into Vietnam, uh, if you look at Southeast Asia. There's been a little bit going into India, but not a lot, uh, not in 2020. I expect that to accelerate uh, uh, in 2021 with the tailwinds from that are powered by the tensions in US-China. There are a lot of countries in Southeast Asia that have yet to gain from these spills. Outside of uh, Vietnam, there's been some going into Malaysia, some going into Thailand, but Indonesia has not gained substantially yet uh, from what I can see. So these flows are going to be interesting, you know, where these investments move to. Some of them are Chinese companies themselves moving into these parts to escape uh, the direct tensions between the U.S. and China. So, you know, the flows into the rest of ASEAN beyond uh, Vietnam, they're going to be interesting. And RCEP is also going to be interesting. RCEP has been signed, which RCEP, as you know, is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Now, that's been signed in November, but it's not been ratified yet. And that ratification has to happen during the course of the year, and that's when half the member states of ASEAN ratify it, and half the dialogue partners ratify it. Only then it comes into effect. When that comes into effect, let's see what happens. You know, are are people going to take advantage of it? Are they going to Move into the region uh, in a bigger way. Will China itself be comfortable uh, doing that? I think these are some of the issues that are going to be what's watching over here.
2: Kevin, what what is your view on this? I think this is an interesting trend in a couple of respects. I mean, one, of course, is you know the reordering of a manufacturing supply chain that Ravi's touched on. That you know we've seen that developing in sectors, for example, the auto sector in recent years. I think. That in part was based on cost, in part based on an assessment of kind of rising political and trade risk. But I think that the latter of those is e- even more accentuated now. And you're going to see, uh, I think, increasingly a battle over standards and ecosystems that are non compatible that sort of emerge around new technologies between the US and China. So just to take one. You know, one emerging industry that I've been following, if you think about autonomous drive vehicles and EVs, well, at some level, the lithium ion or the next generation battery might be fungible. Um, there might be a, some margin in in the breakthrough to increasing range. But what companies like Apple and Google, and I have to assume Chinese companies won't be far behind, are interested in is the automobile as a node for services, for search engine optimization, for marketing. Uh, for transactions and payments. And it's impossible to think that the same standard in the same ecosystem will apply in China, the largest ma- market for automobiles, as will apply in the United States. So watching how those standards start to diverge, uh, I think will be really interesting. I, there was a, a quote I bumped into recently uh, that I thought was kind of defining in terms of the ambition of Chinese policymakers and Chinese business on this, which is to say, Third-rate companies make products. Second-rate companies make technology. Top-tier companies set standards. And I think watching the battle for standards is going to be very interesting. So
1: what you're saying is that, you know, we started to see this in telco, 5G, what have you, and you're saying that, you know, we could see parallels to this, for example, in the automobile uh, sector, as an example. Are there other sectors you can see this, uh, this kind of evolution?
2: Well, I think so. Another one that we've, we've looked at, I think is interesting. I think companies and technologies that hadn't been seen as having any significant overlay of political risk. Um, I think the, the calculus there is changing too. So if you take, for example, the form of genetic testing that people do for ancestry research, or in some cases that expectant mothers do for prenatal testing, but I think there's now an overlay of concern about what happens to the data. Where does the data go? that will start to mean that you see, again, potentially divergence in in areas uh, where we never would have expected that.
1: And can I go to you, Ravi, and ask you, so if we have this, let's call it divergence or parallel ecosystems, different standards and what have you, how does a region like ASEAN, for example, that over the years has kind of found its middle way, found a middle way, How does ASEAN think about this? How do companies in ASEAN relate to these kind of multiple ecosystems and standards?
3: Oliver, I think for the last 50 years, this uh, region has sort of uh, trodden carefully. Uh, I wouldn't say a middle path, but they, like the bamboo, they have, uh, you know, moved one way for a while and the other way for a bit. And they will have to navigate these waters. Uh, They have no choice. The fact is that China is, it's a geographical reality. The United States is a geopolitical construct. I mean, that's essentially the uh, difference between these two major powers. Uh, uh, both of them have tremendous influence on the region. But I can al- already see companies uh, doing the footwork uh, for what lies ahead. I, I'm not sure I want to name this particular company. It's a it's a giant uh, financial services uh, company. They have setting up two clouds: a Chinese cloud and uh, a you U.S. Club. It's not going where things could go, but they are in both, uh, both spaces. So Singapore, for instance, you know, it's, uh, it's always believed in an open architecture for the region, whether strategically or business-wise. And you see the number of Chinese companies that are moving to Singapore to uh, set up their uh, global headquarters here or international headquarters uh, in, in this island. So uh, the trick is uh, not to get caught uh, too much and to make it plain to both that uh, we do not wish to be either in your camp or the other camp, we just want to be in our own camp. And it is for the two of (laughs) of you to make the adjustments uh, for us all to, to coexist.
0: Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast,
2: Ravi. I could, if I could just return to what you said there, which I think is really interesting, you know, potentially then, if a company here needs to, or companies elsewhere, even beyond uh, Southeast Asia, have to operate in two clouds and two skies, as it were, that's an additional cost of business that you know probably we wouldn't have anticipated
3: a few years ago. Absolutely, it will drive up costs, but there's no choice. You know you just have to be prepared, yeah Kevin, can I ask you, I, I believe you were based
1: in Tokyo for quite a number of years. We haven't spoken about Japan. How does Japan and Japanese companies think about this new world if I'm allowed to call it that?
2: well, I think so to start with uh, sort of the political response and I think the ruling party, the ldp's view of the security risks, it's clear that They are concerned about a longer-term trend of U.S. disengagement from the region and are looking for ways to be autonomous. So I think it starts there. Again, I think many Japanese companies face the sort of dilemma that Ravi's described. Companies like, again, to stay with the auto sector, Toyota, for them, China is an indispensable market now, both for sourcing and for sales, as is the United States. So I think navigating this is is going to be a particular challenge. I think clearly the politics, public sympathy is more aligned even now with the U.S., but the economic reality for major companies uh, is a different story. Got it. Gentlemen,
1: if it's okay, let's shift topics. Uh, We've already started, you've already started talking a little bit about there's an ongoing technology revolution that we see happening worldwide. We see it happening in Asia. What are some of the most interesting things that you see with regards to the ongoing technology revolution, the digital and analytics transformations that we see transforming not only companies, but countries? What are some of the most interesting things you're picking uh, up
3: around the region? Can we have a go at that, uh, Oliver? The last time we spoke, uh, I think we discussed uh, the Middle East being part of uh, Asia, really. It's West Asia, as I call it. Right. And, you know, if you look at uh, how countries react as nations, you look at the uh, example of Qatar uh, and uh, the way it survived the block it uh, led by the Saudis and, uh, you know, joined in by the UAE and uh, several others in the GCC uh, nations. Today, Qatar is uh, Self-sufficient in milk, in dairy, it's getting to be nearly self-sufficient in agriculture, and that's because of new technologies that are available. uh, Whether it's in uh, minimal use of land, minimal use of water, Uh, lighting, it is now possible for Philips, uh, which is a lighting company, to be an agriculture company because uh, you know by by just varying the amount of light in a greenhouse environment, you can actually change the taste of the strawberries that you make. So, you know, I mean, at the national level, I thought Qatar was a wonderful example of, and it's happening in, I mean, down the line, it's happening with particular companies, for instance. Everybody has to adjust today. I was just reading the uh, Hong Kong papers, and I saw uh, reports that Standard Chartered is giving up floor space, uh, several floors of uh, office space in downtown. And I understand that uh, this month, they're sending out letters to staff asking them to decide How many hours do you want to spend in the office? How many hours uh, do you want to work from home? And based on that, uh, you know, the entire configuration of uh, office space is going to take place. So real estate is going to be affected. You look at uh, telemedicine, for instance, Ping An of uh, China. They have this thing called Ping An Good Doctor. It used to be called Ping An Healthcare and uh, Services. That company is today valued at uh, uh, more than 100 billion Hong Kong dollars. And it's not very old. It's got 200 million customers. Can you imagine? One in seven Chinese are customers of Ping An uh, Good Doctor. For telemedicine? I can see that happening in India in a big way. The man behind Ping An Good Doctor is currently the CEO of uh, AIA. That's a giant uh, Asian insurance group based in Hong Kong. He's a Singaporean. His name is uh, Lee Yun-seong. Yun-seong is telling me that uh, in India, his insurance business grew through the year. The entire... uh, Uh, the network and the delivery systems without loss of efficiency because of the swift adaptation of the digital. Uh, So you're going to see this kind of stuff multiplied around the region. Uh, The very quick adapters to technology, uh, if you look at the uh, uh, apps that are being downloaded, I don't think any region comes close to Asia in that. And uh, all this is setting the stage for the next burst of uh, innovation and growth in Asia. And combined with uh, what were the key elements of the uh, of Industry 4.0 or the fourth industrial revolution, as people said, you know the AI, the analytics, uh, the robotics, the automation, and now on top of all that is going to be uh, sustainability issues. That's you know, you know Chinese companies like Envision Technologies, for instance, they're doing wonderful work in uh, renewables and they see it as adding competitive edge to their uh, to the products that they make you know whether it's ultimately something called green steel or green gearboxes or what have you so if you put it all together i think we're fortunate to be in a very interesting very promising part of the world
2: one issue that evolving technology we've been tracking closely not a surprise but the application of ai and supercomputing in some cases to big data some of those innovations seem incremental, but I think are significant. Uh, For example, if you take the Japanese chain store Lawson's, you know, Japanese companies in general are known as leading edge in terms of inventory management. It's, you know, Japan invented just-in-time inventory management, but Lawson's through the application of big data and an AI has found ways to reduce inventory levels by 30%. Over the course of the last year, which is pretty remarkable in terms of the cost savings and then to Robbie's point about sustainability, decrease in food waste and, and plastic waste as a result. You see companies, uh, again, staying with Japan like Komatsu, a company that had been you know, a tractor and building and mining equipment vendor, really becoming a data vendor now because through the Internet of Things and the network uh, the, and, and analytic uh, potential that opens up, They're able to sell insights back to uh, construction companies, mining operators, uh, and then aggregate all of that data into what becomes a really powerful real-time indicator of construction and uh, and economic activity. It was, you know, uh, we mentioned China's turn, China's surge back in the course of 2020. It was interesting to watch that Komatsu uh, indicator in something like real-time as you started to get construction boots back on the ground. And I think that... The wider application of this is as you get to increasingly digital transactions, possibly a digital yuan in China, the way that we think about measuring the health of an economy will just fundamentally change. Or we'll be having second to second updates.
1: What the two of you are describing, I mean,
2: it, it really is fascinating. The
1: technologies that we see are, they're going to change agriculture. Right. An example that you used, uh, Ravi, you're going to change the way we work, working from home and what have you. They're going to change the nature of, of medicine, of health care. So if you look at, in sum, you're positive, you're optimistic, or you're pessimistic about the years ahead, this year ahead
3: and the years ahead? Absolutely, Oliver. I'm completely optimistic. I think uh, we're going to see, there are green shoots that are already becoming evident. But I think in the second half of this year, you're going to see an acceleration of that. There are uh, countries where uh, you can already see a, a form of herd immunity coming up, and uh, you know you see by the numbers of the COVID cases that have fallen, the recovery rates are impressive. And in China, the uh, uh, you know if you look at domestic travel in China, it's almost back to uh, pre uh, uh, to 2019 levels, and the same with India. These big economies are are going to uh, get back their mojo, so to speak. And with innovation and technology, it just last year, the second half of last year, there were 11 unicorns spawned in India alone. You know, the, the first half was a, was a goner, uh, so to speak. But the second half was very, very uh, active and uh, uh, energized, and a whole bunch of companies have come in. And uh, just one country creating 11 unicorns in s- six months, months—it's it's a tremendous feat, even for a large country like India. So you're going to see, combined with logistics, innovation, digitization, I, I think uh, we are in for a spurt of growth. Asian economies had been slowing before, before COVID. COVID just attacked what is already a, a weak system. But the changes, the new energies that are being uh, unleashed, uh, um, uh, unleashed across Asia today should keep us going for at least another decade uh, as, as I see it.
2: You
1: agree, Kevin? Are you an uh, optimist
2: as well? I think sort of professionally, I can't be either optimistic or pessimistic, <laughs> but I'm curious. And uh, I think it's easy to underestimate the, what networked human intelligence, uh, can do over time and how much innovation is possible. And, you know, we, we talked about how, you know, Ravi, you, you said it too, how we were surprised by how much we could do in a networked, you know, in a networked, operation in the network newsroom you know that that makes me think well i'm not sure what the future of commercial real estate is but i also know that there must be you know very smart people working on exactly that problem and if you ask me this question you know a, a year from now i would my pessimism or you know concern about the outlook there might might have been misplaced so yeah i would say i'm, I'm curious and interested to see how applied innovation uh pertains and um And if we zoom in on a couple of topics that I think do worry
1: many of us, and I know it worries the two of you, too, which is climate change, climate risk, sustainability. And the other topic is inequality. Any thoughts on those two topics in Asia specifically?
2: I'll start with climate. And, you know, you you mentioned this at the outset, and I think it's true that you're starting to see commitments from companies on climate that are they're both meaningful and transformative if it's it's not an asia example but if you look at what gm has announced for 2035 you know the end of the tailpipe by 2035 in the automotive industry that's two or maybe three vehicle cycles traditionally and for a company like gm which you know just less than 2 years ago had been siding with the trump administration against tougher environmental standards to say You know, we'll be done with internal combustion by 2035 is a really remarkable turnaround. And I think very significant. There are other examples you can, you can point to there. So I think we're seeing that. I think those, those commitments are real. They're not feel good greenwashing. They're fundamentally transformative uh, in terms of the business in many cases.
3: Oliver, on the issue of uh, climate change, I think there has been. Significant increase in the awareness of the issue with uh, uh, both companies and uh, company leaderships around the region. The good thing is that people recognise uh, that this is an issue that needs tackling. Look at the floods that are happening in uh, uh, in the region. If you look at landslides, the one that caused the the, the big accident uh, this week in India, for instance, because of dam building, the environment is coming rising to the surface as a as a major issue to be tackled and. Some CEOs are leading that move. If you look at Standard Chartered, which is really a British bank with its biggest footprint uh, being in Asia, Uh, Bill Winters, who is the CEO of Standard Chartered, is on the uh, uh, carbon uh, committee set up by uh, Carney. And so much of his time and thought uh, and thinking is spent on climate change uh, these days. Naturally, that will impact the bank and the way the bank lends uh, to the kind of projects uh, it lends to. And there are other people calling it out. Greenpeace, for instance, today publishes a list of uh, companies that are, uh, you know, lending to non-sustainable sectors. And, uh, you know, they they list them out. And people want to get on the right side of that, uh, of that list. Uh, Also, if you look at uh, a big agro commodities uh, group like Olam, for instance, the current CEO, uh, the CEO of Olam, Sunny Wurgis, who's, who's your neighbor uh, in in the next building to yours, uh, Oliver. He is the current president of the WBSD, that's the World uh, Sustainability uh, c- Council. Uh, and he inherited that position from Paul Polman of uh, Unilever. So you see the level of, uh, of people who, who are committed to it. You talk to Sonny burgess and he tells you he doesn't want to see Olam as the biggest agro-commodities uh, business in the world. He wants to see it as the most valuable business in that space and the value he finds is by the differentiation uh, in doing things right and using new technologies like blockchain to go from farm to refrigerator to identify goods that are made in sustainable uh, ways. So I think on the whole, uh, there is room for moderate optimism on this front. If we can uh, convince people that there's a moral imperative behind it and that, uh, you know, I think uh, you could uh, probably get some movement, and, and the West will ha- Europe particularly will have to help out with technology and being generous with technology to Asian companies to help them make this transition. Uh, you know If you just look at uh, agriculture output in China, it takes about 500 kilos of uh, fertilizer per hectare in China. Uh, the Germans do it with 140 uh, kilos. So if you have that technology that can be moved across uh, you know without putting too heavy a charge on it, I think uh, there's uh, a lot of room for uh, regions to cooperate, for companies to cooperate, and hopefully uh, uh, you know people will see merit in doing that. Just to return to
2: one point there I mean I think there is a lot of increasing uh, enlightened sort of self-interest among companies when we look at climate issues. Um, the other issue, Oliver, you mentioned which is the issue of social equity equality and it's demonstrable that the worst effects of covid economic and epidemiological have been with the poorest people of, of this region and elsewhere you know how how that's addressed both politically and economically you know it's harder to see movement on that uh, frankly and i think that has the potential to reshape the politics and the debate around
3: a, a number of issues yeah, I agree with you, Kevin. You're completely on target there. If you look at Hong Kong, for instance, you know, the kind of rumbles that uh, the territory has gone through in the last uh, three to four years, a lot of it is because of uh, inequality. And if that's going to get worse, uh, as it has uh, during COVID, and that's going to be factors for business to consider. And
1: it is sad. Um, you, know, you mentioned the poor are are hit. Worse by COVID, the same is true when it comes to some of the effects of climate change, right? It is the the poor are often hit even more by the effects, whether it is in areas working and living in areas that uh, are going to see some heat waves uh, or it's in flooding and what have you. So uh, this is something that I think needs to be looked at even more seriously going forward. Listen, I think we are approaching the end of uh, of the session. What I would love to ask each of you to uh, round us out, so to speak, is if you put yourselves in the shoes of some of the senior executives around the region of uh, of respective companies, what is that one piece of advice you would have for them as you look into 2021? What are the things you are looking out for in, in the year to come?
2: I wouldn't deign to offer advice, but I, if I could be allowed a professional plug, I would say this. Uh, tell your story. I think that's very important. Of, of course, I would say that. It's my job to help you tell your story and to examine it critically. But I think as technology evolves, as the operating environment changes, it's it's imperative for, for businesses to be out there to be telling their story. And, you know, Ravi and I will are, are here to take your calls.
3: <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> 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 I, I completely agree. It's just that uh, I can't help adding a bit of advice to uh, company ceos while well, i completely agree with what kevin said uh, it is uh, and that piece of advice would be to monitor and look after the mental health of your employees because uh, you know one of the things that covid has done is uh, it's uh, in many ways because people are traveling less eating out less you know commuting less the uh, a lot of diseases have actually come down as as i can see i mean certainly accidents on the road have come down Likewise, uh, you know, I think in, in those who have not been uh, unfortunate and gotten the COVID, for, for, for a lot of people, health has actually improved. But mental health, I'm not too sure about that. Uh, whether it's cabin fever or uh, uh, children growing up without uh, peers to fight with and laugh and play with and, uh, you know, who, who are likely to have adjustment problems later. Uh, colleagues who are just hold up at home in cramped spaces uh, where the, you know, the office used to be a relief, especially in a place like Hong Kong, for instance, when you you really live in a shoebox, but you come into uh, out in the open and have more space, uh, uh, you know, around the office uh, areas. So I think um, uh, there, there is going to be an epidemic of mental health uh, in this region coming up and COVID may have accelerated some of it. And I think a good CEO would keep a very good close eye on that uh, for his colleagues. I want to use this podcast to give a big shout out to uh, company uh, leaders who I admire uh, tremendously. One is Patrick uh, Gelsinger of VMware. He's uh, going to be the new CEO of uh, Intel in a bit. Patrick gives away half his income, annual income to good causes. A lot of the money goes to uh, Africa where hundreds of children are educated on Patrick's money. He sees it as a moral necessity. He sees it as part of his uh, religion. And I mean, it's emblematic of corporate leaders who not only want to do good by their families and by their nations, but for larger humanity. Another person I admire in this uh, context is uh, Francois uh, Locodonu of uh, F5 Networks. It's a uh, Seattle-based software company. Francois is of uh, Togolese-French origin. He's an American uh, citizen uh, now. And some years ago, uh, he opened the first cashew processing uh, factory in Togo, in West Africa. And uh, his intention was to give employment to 80 uh, women. Today, he has two of those plants operating in Togo, and they employ 800 women. These are women who have tried to go into countries like Benin, Looking for jobs as you know helpers, but thanks to Francois, there eight hundred women are gainfully employed, and that's lifted entire villages in that country. So, alongside uh, sustainability and, uh, issues, I, it's it's wonderful to see these corporate leaders bringing their uh, individual contributions to humanity.
1: Very sound advice, uh, Ravi. Listen. Let me just end by saying a huge thank you to uh, Kevin Kralicki and Ravi Villar. I think this has been a, a fascinating discussion. I wish we had much more time because I think there is at least a dozen topics here. We could spend another 15, 20 minutes on each of those topics, uh, but we will save that for the future. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Ravi. Yep. And uh, have a great day, everyone.
0: You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash Asia, or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.